Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're uh, in the middle of three classes on emptiness, as the Buddha taught emptiness or nothingness. Uh, the important significance here, um, or one of them, is that the Buddha's application of the concept of emptiness or nothingness uh, is contradicted by much of uh, modern Buddhism and really much of modern New Age thought. That, uh, and again, it's not a it's not a knock or a put down on any of it. It's just to point out the differences, and it's a, a significant one, where most of modern Buddhism and most of modern New Agey thought. Uh, really resolves in an annihilation of the self uh, rather than an understanding of emptiness as the Buddha teaches, meaning that the, the self is empty of, uh, of uh, anything worth referencing or that the self uh, should um, look to establish itself in some realm of nothingness or emptiness. Uh, that was taught in three of the major schools that I studied in. Uh, that idea, and of course, that's that the that was a common idea during the Buddha's time as well, uh, taught by Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta, two primary teachers of of young Siddhartha, uh, that were based on um, the precursors to modern Hinduism, meaning the, the the Vedas and the Upanishads, that all in very magical or mystical ways resolve the self in some kind of non physical realm. Uh, Maybe that's true. Maybe we're all all going to end up in some kind of Tulsita Buddhist heaven. But the Buddha never taught that, and he taught that to even consider that as a reasonable goal is a distraction and a waste of a human life. So these suttas are important to understand the Buddha's meaning on emptiness and nothingness, which is to empty ourselves of ignorance, but not to empty ourselves of a human experience. In fact, the whole point of the Buddha's Dhamma is to, is to find a way to actually live a human life moment by moment without taking any of it personally. Because again, an understanding of the Buddha's Dhamma is once I start personalizing my life through a fabricated view of myself in relation to the world, I've lost this moment, I've lost my mind, and I've lost my life. And so the Buddha taught us, any human being who was interested, a way of understanding what it means to be a human being within an ever-changing world, a world that can sometimes be characterized as rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, or always characterized that way, and how to not be distracted by our own ignorance. In other words, how to develop wisdom where there was once ignorance of who and what I am. In order to do that, I can't start from a platform that resolves an annihilation of self. It has to begin in a way of establishing who and what I am. And that's why we practice jhana meditation, because a mind that is distracted doesn't know who or what it is. A mind that is well concentrated can then incorporate the Eightfold Path and realize what an awakened human being is and what an awakened human being can never be, which is annihilated. We can't be. We, every human being is going to die. But as far as this human life, I don't want to annihilate myself or my mind in this moment through ignorance, 
I want to develop wisdom so that I can place myself where I am in a human body. The Buddha was in Kapalavatu at the Banyan Park. Returning from his alms round, he noticed the many, <clears throat> excuse me, the many resting places prepared at Kalamaka, the, the Sakin's dwelling, and wondered if there were many monks living there. Ananda and many other monks were at the dwelling of Gata making robes. That evening, the Buddha went to Gata's dwelling. He asked Ananda about the many resting places at Kalakamaka's dwelling and if there were many monks living there. And the, the Buddha's concern now, uh, he's trying to get an understanding of what is the makeup of, of this, um, uh, this the, what is the fabric of this small social, social um, group that have established themselves outside now of, this, of the original Sangha and are doing something that may be pers- purposeful but the Buddha's concerned that they're, they're creating eye-making by their, by their internal associations with each other outside of the Sangha, meaning making something more important, even if it is sitting together making robes and talking about how you'd like the Dhamma to be different. Ananda replied, yes, teacher, many monks are in attendance here and we are making robes for them. The Buddha, the Buddha was concerned about the... So again, just to continue that reference, and so there's many... Um, beginning practitioners, if they're making robes for some others, it's because they don't have robes yet. They're, they're in the beginning stages of Dhamma practice. So the Buddha was concerned about the social aspects of living as a close community. He was concerned. He wasn't against it. He was concerned. He, uh, the reason why I say that is I'm getting... Uh, re- well, I don't need to explain why. I'm, but that, that's, that's the reason. He was concerned, not against it. He remarked to Ananda that a Dhamma practitioner does not flourish if they delight in company and is committed to delighting in company. So there's two things there, committed to, to, the, to uh, the, the delight in company and, continue, and finding a way to continue that delight because it feels good. And so what is the Buddha talking about? Again, he's not talking about that we should never be a part of any group um, such as... Um, uh, belonging to a football club, a soccer club, or a golf club, or uh, a card club, or any kind of club, any group of people, the Thursday night bowling league, it doesn't matter. What the Buddha is talking about here, through that association, is creating an identity by that group. And so I, you just talked about uh, football, English football, but you could say the same thing about American football or any sports team. It's people that overly identify with the team literally use, lose their minds often at games, and sometimes to the point of violence, because they feel their team was, was somehow put upon, and so they'll start a fight over that, when of course that arises by identifying with that team in too close a fashion, or we wouldn't lose our minds over it. But again, we do that not just with sport teams, sport teams, but we do it with our own ideas about ourselves in relation to the world. So use, going back to the analogy of a sport team, of course I have no connection to a sports team, except I'm watching them for entertainment and maybe distraction values. But to create an identity over a sports team simply because they're local to me or I like, I like the team is the, uh, excuse me for saying it this way, is really insane, isn't it? Because of course, no matter how much I like a team, I can't be part of the team. I'm not part of the team. I'm not sitting on the bench. But if I associate too closely I can lose my mind if something happens to the team that I wish wouldn't. Or if something happens that challenges an idea of mine, 
I can likewise lose my mind because I'm self-associated with the idea. When the idea itself, any idea, any sports team, any bowling league, any golf club, any idea has to be by its nature impersonal unless I make it impersonal. So we have to be very careful what we cling ourselves to or associate with. Again, the Buddha is not saying don't have any associations or don't have any ideas, but keep those ideas and those associations empty of ignorance. The Buddha continues, a dollar practitioner does not flourish if they delight in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group. Again, taking an identity and then building on that identity. It is, in, Buddha continues, it is indeed impossible when a Dhamma practitioner delights in company, is committed to company, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in a group that they will achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding uh, and release and of self-awakening. So again, the Buddha is not saying there's anything at all wrong with associating closely and clinging that association to other groups that are not associated with the Dhamma, he's basically saying, go ahead and do it. And do it as much and as often as you want, unless you want to develop the Dhamma. And then he says, don't do it. And again, he's not saying, don't be a part of a group. Don't cling your identity or develop an identity from that group. Or it will be a constant distraction from the Dhamma. And any possibility of self-awakening. And the Buddha also points here, let me read the, the part of that line again. Who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in a group that they will ever achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding from views, ignorance, ign ignorant of Four Noble Truths. The pure pleasure. The pure pleasure. So we, we associate with groups and ideas and cling to those because there's some measure of pleasure. But that pleasure is rooted in eye-making. In other words, the pleasure is rooted in continuing the ignorance of me rather than the understanding of me, which is the pure pleasure. And in other suttas, we, the Buddha talks about that is the highest pleasure, the highest goal. It's a pure pleasure. It's not tainted by eye-making or fabricated views. Ananda, it is indeed impossible for one who lives alone. I'm sorry. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups, meaning not associating. The Buddha is not saying live your life as a hermit. Again, the Buddha didn't live his life as a hermit. None of the original Sangha did. They were deeply involved in the affairs of the world, and every day they, were, they, were, they walked into whatever nearby town was, and they interacted with the people. So withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups can achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding, and release, and of self-awakening. It, it is impossible for one, and it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company. So how do we exemplify that in our Dhamma practice? We establish that on our cushion, quite secluded. Our Dhamma practice, jhana meditation, whether we're practicing it in a physical seclusion or in a group like we're doing in, during class, is still the establishment of seclusion because we are uniting our mind and our body through jhana meditation. So you could, this is a perfect example of what the Buddha is teaching, meaning a Dhamma class or part of a, a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, that we are, we are amongst people here, aren't we? both online and, and physically. But we aren't creating, or I hope we're not creating an, a special identity of being part of John Haspel's Sangha or D. 
the, the Buddha's original Dhamma Sangha or the Cross Pond Sangha. We, we know that we come to Cross River Meditation Center or the Cross Pond Sangha in UK to, to come together as a group and practice our Dhamma practice. But hopefully none of us see ourselves as any different than any other human being, save for the most important difference, our pure Dhamma practice, as the Buddha teaches it. And again, that's not a comment on other Dhamma practice or modern Dharma practice, but as far as the Dhamma is concerned, the restored teachings of the Dhamma of the Buddha are what we teach here, and we keep it pure along those lines. It's okay if we don't want to do that. Nobody has to. Nobody's going is under any penalty to practice here and go someplace else and practice something else. I won't know. Well, I probably will know, but I won't care. <laughs> I won't bother with, with losing my mind over it. But as a Dhamma teacher, what I will tell you is what I learned. And that, that these are the Buddha's words. And he, he insists on if we're going to develop his Dhamma, that we keep it pure so that we can experience the pure, the pure pleasure of rightly self-awakening. Then the Buddha continues, Ananda, it is impossible for a Dhamma practitioner who delights in company and is committed to delighting in company, who delights in being part of a group, instead of delighting in developing the Dhamma, the pure pleasure, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group, is able to, to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable, or in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and beyond fabrication. So as long, even if our, and this is what I, I just referenced, even if we are part of a well-focused and well-informed sangha, if I'm taking delight in the sangha and just being a part of this, this is what this is what this section references, that's not enough. It's not just enough to, to, to self-identify with the world's greatest sangha, just kidding, folks, because that's not going to do it. We have to find the world's greatest sangha and also practice what is taught there. We have to find a well-focused and well-informed sangha and practice what is what is taught there rather than simply joining. And again, why did the Buddha teach that, a teaching that is so relevant today? Because he noticed that most people were joiners and not practitioners. Even in fabricated dharmas, he noticed that. Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta noticed that in young Siddhartha, that he wasn't a joiner, that he was a developer so much so that he was able to develop their dhamma, that they wanted him to become a part of their dhamma and be one of their representatives. The greatest honor you could give someone during the Buddha's time would be that. And he said, no, I don't want that because your dhamma doesn't lead to the goal. He did not want to identify with their, with, with their group because he knew that would then be the distraction from him. He even called that, in, in other suttas, a confining place. Any place that continues the fabrication of eye-making is a confining place in Siddhartha's mind and mine and ours. Okay, let's skip over a bit. Okay, Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable or in the more refined, in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is, and is beyond fabrication. Then he continues, I do not see even a single being who would not experience confusion, delusion, and suffering 
from being passionate and taking delight in company and groups. And he's talking about his own group here as well. Listen to this and listen and, 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 and just think about how often you have done this throughout your life and are probably to some extent doing it right now and maybe not all in that one thought, consider it how that is a distraction from your Dhamma practice. And again, a distraction doesn't mean it's bad or evil or any other appellation we want to put on it. It's important to recognize the difference. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups, to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable, or in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication. The cessation of eye-making. The Buddha continues, I do not see even a single being who would not experience confusion, I said that, confusion, delusion, and suffering from being passionate and taking delight in company and groups. Being passionate is always a reference to, to eye-making in that moment. Ananda, there is a pleasant abiding discovered by the Tathagata, the Buddha is referring to himself, not attending to any self-referential views, who enters and remains in an internal quality that is empty of any self-referential views and internal emptiness. An internal emptiness, not an external emptiness, not a void, a voidness of self, a nothingness of self. An internal emptiness, empty of fabricated views. While abiding in this pleasant abiding, this internal emptiness, he is visited by others, his mind well established in seclusion and having abandoned the fermentations that develop from clinging to company and groups, converses with, own, with others only when necessary and skillful, and then they take their leave. Excuse me. What's the Buddha referring to? He's referring specifically to the idle chatter that's developed within groups and keeps groups clinging together talking about things that have no relevance to the Dhamma. So there's two cautions here. There's one is joining a Dhamma practice that doesn't do that, that does not engage in right speech. And as the Buddha said, when you're gathered as a Sangha, you speak only of the Dhamma. Now, of course, he knows that when we aren't in a group, we're not going to only speak of the Dhamma, but he's giving us a caution to not engage in idle chatter as that will direct us out of Dhamma practice or distract us from Dhamma practice. They speak only when necessary and skillful and then they take their leave. And of course that leave might be simply practicing noble silence. And those that have the practice in Cross River Meditation know that noble silence is not forced, agreed upon silence. Noble silence is informed by right speech. So our, our retreats are not for silence. Our retreats are, are framed around engaging in right speech during the time of that retreat so that we can fully integrate the Eightfold Path, not some fabricated silence that does not lead to any kind of understanding because we can't engage in right speech. So how can we learn right speech if we're not speaking? So, Ananda, practice to enter and remain in internal self-referential emptiness. Internal self-referential emptiness. Free of any referential, any views that are self-referential arising from ignorance of four noble truths. Free of clinging, one can now develop concentration. Free of clinging. So that simple act of jhana meditation begins 
the practice of freeing ourselves from clinging. How so? <laughs> a rhetorical question he asked. Every time we find ourselves caught up in a feeling or a thought, or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion, in, in our meditation practice, we remind ourselves to take a breath, an in-breath and an out-breath. I'm just emphasizing. And in that moment, I am withdrawn from, from company. I have established seclusion. And I'm entering and remaining in concentration. In that moment, I've united my mind and my body. I am now established during the breath, not before, not after, during this breath, in, in and out, I am establishing that internal equanimity, equanimity that is rooted in internal emptiness. In that moment, and we all experience it when we're doing jhana meditation. Again, the reason why the Buddha taught jhana meditation and no other is so we can deepen concentration and do just this. First, have that initial experience of the cessation of eye-making in the breath, and then taking that seclusion established, secluded from fabricated views, right, in the breath, off of our cushion, and into our moment-by-moment life, now made possible by integrating the refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. A lot of words, but it's very simple. Increase concentration, integrate the Eightfold Path, and you too will become rightly self-awakened as the Buddha teaches, as we're doing here. As the Buddha continues, when withdrawn from the results of ignorant views, views ignorant of Four Noble Truths, now well concentrated, one enters and remains in the first jhana. Again, we talk about this often. What is the first jhana? Nothing magical or mystical. It's just that. As concentration deepens, one enters and remains in the second jhana and the third jhana. Finally, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, the fourth quality of mind of, of meditative absorption, a quality of mind that is pure and calm with no discrimination between when pleasure between pleasure and pain. This is how one becomes unified within, a mind united in its body and well concentrated. By recognizing the eye-making in this moment, on jhana meditation, that eye-making is reflected in a feeling or a thought or an emotion that is taking our attention away from our breath, a distraction, and putting it back on our breath, concentration. This Dhamma practitioner is, set, is settled in internal self-referential awareness. And just to make a point, I won't get into the jhanas because we teach a lot of medita- a lot of classes on that. Uh, and there's if you did a, if you wanted to learn that, just do a search on jhana meditation, you'll see it. This Dharma practitioner is settled in internal self-referential emptiness. There's no eye making in me. Think about that for a moment. No self-referential. I I, I am sitting in in self-referential emptiness. No thought is self-referential. Think about it. And then think about what that quality of mind would be like without any self-reference, but fully present in this moment. That is a mind that is free of distress. It is a mind resting in equanimity. It is the quality of mind that we first experience in jhana meditation each and every time we take a breath, and it deepens as our practice Practice deepens and it expands as we integrate the Eightfold Path and it expands to the point that we can apply it in each and every moment of our life, life could, provided that we keep it pure. 
Their mind does not crave internal self-referential emptiness. Does not crave, it's simply established. Peace and calm is understood. Peace and calm. This is, the, this is a good description of, of calm too. Peace and calm is understood as being empty of clinging views and unconditioned mindfulness. Conditioned mindfulness would put it be, be putting a condition on my mindfulness, wouldn't it? That I need to be different than I am or the world needs to be different than I'm perceiving it is a conditioned type of mindfulness. That's the, that's the modern application of mindfulness, which has now created its own type of uh, religious worship almost. We have to be mindful all the time. That's unconditioned mindfulness. It's not the refined mindfulness that's developed through the Buddha's Dhamma. Having emptied the Buddha's words, having emptied themselves of self-referential views, they remain mindful of internal and external emptiness. Now we know that refined mindfulness is not craving or has no craving or clinging quality to it. So it's a, a, a type of mindfulness, a type of refined mindfulness that recognizes and also appreciates how fortunate that individual is, how, how fortunate I am to be able to dwell in an internal emptiness. It, it, and it is the most rich and vibrant experience a human being can ever experience. It's not devoid of experience. It's, it's, it's devoid of internal eye-making. It's devoid of this moment, of the need for this moment or this person to be any different than it is. Why? Because I understand this person and this moment can't be any different than is occurring. And that should be obvious to every human being that ever lived, and it's not obvious to hardly anyone. Why? Because we're not concentrated enough to be in this moment, to be in our life as our life occurs, and we don't have the wisdom to understand what is actually occurring. And where do we develop that wisdom? Again, through the Eightfold Path. Free from external or internal disturbances. Meaning an internal would be something I'm generating within me, a new idea, which is just a condition idea, or a reaction to what's coming into my sixth sense base, something occurring in the world. Or it could be the distraction of who am I going to be in the next life as a reward for my wonderful Buddhist practice. And the next life is simply metaphor, in this case, for the next moment. The cessation of eye-making. Free from external and internal disturbance, they are brilliant and alert and at peace. Brilliant and alert and at peace. Another apt description for an awakened calm mind. Brilliant, alert, and at peace. They take pleasure in the emptiness of self-referential views. They have developed skillful concentration. Whether walk, The Buddha continues, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, this Dharma practitioner knows that no craving or regret or any unskillful quality will arise. I'm going to read it again because this is the power of an Eightfold Path. Whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, no matter what I'm doing, this Dharma practitioner knows. Again, we can't know anything. You can't know anything that I tell you. You can, as far as the Dharma is concerned, you can know the Dhamma through your own right efforts. And you, everybody here is, knows what I'm talking about. Whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, this Dhamma practitioner knows 
that no craving or regret or any unskillful quality, such as all of the unskillful qualities that every one of us has been trying to rid ourselves of since we've, been, since we've recognized unskillful qualities, those unskillful qualities will not arise. In this moment, we're good to go. In this moment, I know that I can cause myself or no one else any harm. And maybe, maybe I should say intentional harm. That is the ultimate freedom, isn't it? Think about that. You no longer are conditioned by your own self-inflicted pain, the second arrow. You're no longer being driven by the things that you are craving after or need to avoid. You are simply present for life as life occurs, no matter how it is. And that is how we experience the richness of life. Not by chasing after something more and not being having aversion to what is occurring now, which is really an aversion to myself. Their speech is not base or vulgar or common or ignoble or harmful or unnecessary. Imagine if we could have that kind of control over our, just what comes out of our mouth. And we can. And we're all experiencing that. Or does not that my speech does not lead to disenchantment or to dispassion or to cessation or to calm or to direct knowledge or to unbinding or to self-awakening. They are unconcerned with kings or robbers or, or food or armies or gossip or talk of existence or non-existence. Excuse me. It's so interesting when I read those things because much of my... Dharma practice, Dharma practice before I came to the Buddha was, was really a focus on non-existence. So they are unconcerned with kings who might have more than me or robbers, those that might take away what, what I have or getting more food or armies, what's going on in the world today or gossip, what are people saying about me? Imagine being free of that or the talk of existence or non-existence. I don't have to be distracted about where I am or where I'm going or any talk rooted in self-interest. Their mind is alert and well-concentrated. This Dharma practitioner develops the right intention to engage in right speech that is free of craving and clinging and is scrupulous, supportive of the Dharma. It leads to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, to unbinding, to self-awakening. Their mind is alert and well-concentrated. You've heard me say often, excuse me, that the most loving thing I could, if I'm really concerned about other human beings, the most lo- and every human being does, the most loving thing I can do for myself and all other human beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because now I know that my speech will not lead to other people's enchantment or to more passion or to, con- or to increase their ignorance of themselves in relation to the world. Whether I'm speaking the Dhamma directly or teaching the Dhamma, and that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in my mundane, moment-by-moment life, when I'm coming in contact with anyone, my speech will not continue their ignorance and their continued enchantment or passion for continued eye-making. That's what, again, that's what the Buddha's talking about. He's talking about being... Um, a profound level of ethics that's rarely seen in this world. The ability to hold my tongue. 
This Dharma practitioner develops the right intention to think skillful thoughts. Skillful thoughts, framed by the Eightfold Path. Free of group influence. Imagine that. That I'm no longer what's that, run around by the nose by the ideological groups that I've attached myself to. The right intention to think skillful thoughts, free of group, group influence, that lead to renunciation, to harmlessness, to the cessation of confusion, delusion, and stress. One of the big obstacles I had to leaving my modern Buddhist practice behind and develop only what the Buddha taught is because in my case, there was no Sangha to come to. It was just me trying to figure this out on my own. But I had a strong association with many of the groups that I was a part of um, and the, 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 the times that I had spent in different monasteries. And I had to turn my back on all of those if I was going to develop the Dharma. And it took me a little while. I still kind of went to different monasteries and different practices every now and then because I was having a hard time disassociating myself with them. There was a longing for their camaraderie that I, it took me a while to realize that that longing for the camaraderie was distracting me from developing the Dhamma because there was no way that I could sit and listen to a talk that was contradictory to the Dhamma while I'm associating with the people that were associating with that idea and not cling it to the Dhamma. It, it was just impossible for me. And so I realized that if I was going to continue to develop the Dhamma, I had to disassociate myself from those other practices. It did not mean that I completely disassociated myself with some of the people there. In fact, some of, some of my best friends are modern Buddhists, as they say. <laughs> Their mind is alert and well-concentrated. While dwelling in seclusion, again, not just the seclusion that we establish in jhana meditation, but the seclusion that we're able to take off our cushion into our moment-by-moment life. While dwelling in seclusion, their mind well-concentrated, mindfulness of right intention provides the framework to recognize and abandon thoughts that are base, vulgar, common, ignoble, hurtful, that do not develop this enchantment, this passion, Release, calm, direct knowledge, and self-awakening. So we talk about this part all the time in Dhamma practice. That and much of our discussion is our own recognition of coming up against eye-making in the moment, recognizing it, maybe as anger or uh, frustration, etc., etc., recognizing the eye-making in it, taking a breath and moving on. That's pure Dhamma practice. So having thoughts that we recognize as less than refined, and abandoning those thoughts, taking a breath, is part of Dhamma practice. So the fact that we're doing it doesn't mean that Dhamma practice is failing. It means that we're actually engaged in practice. Excuse me. I'm only saying that because some of us can say, well, I just can't get this because I keep having to to repeat myself in the recognition and abandonment of eye-making. But the fact that you're doing it proves that your Dhamma practice is working. Not that it should be abandoned. The Buddha continues. They, main, they maintain the right intention to, to think thoughts that are noble and develop renunciation. Renunciation from all fabricated views. Harmlessness and liberation. Liberation is part of this practice. Liberation from my own fabricated views. They are well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. Empty of disturbing thoughts. Ananda, develop refined mindfulness of the sixth sense base, the five uh, physical senses, 
uh, and the sixth sense of concentration, the sixth sense space, to understand how contact with the senses creates disturbance and inflames passion. To understand it, not eliminate it. Again, the Buddha's not saying if you're going to be a Dhamma practitioner, you have to never ever come in contact with humanity. We maintain seclusion by guarding our senses. And then our senses become the vehicle for an enriched human life. Because now my senses are not being used for fellow eye, for continued eye making. They're, they're used for true fellowship in the world. That's why I skipped on the word. If I am going to be mindfully present in this moment with you or anyone else or what is occurring, I have to be well concentrated and understand how to remove me out of it in a self-referential view, the greed, aversion that is rooted in deluded thinking that would otherwise arise in this moment and create some type of disturbance in my mind. Rooted in, I want more, I want less. Because I don't understand who and what I am in the world I live in. The Buddha then tells Ananda, Ananda, ask yourself, if there is any disturbance formed by engagement, meaning clinging to the world, and self-identification with regard to contact at, at the sixth sense base. Am I continuing to demand that the world and other people in the world provide distraction and satisfaction to me? Or, as I'm learning here in the sutta, am I taking pure satisfaction, pure pleasure, out of ultimate renunciation, being empty of ignorance? Because that is the only way, the goal of the Dharma, that we can ever establish the fourth foundation of mindfulness continually. A, a continually calm and peaceful mind, free of entanglements in the world. If upon mindful reflection, the Buddha says, you find that disturbance has arisen from contact, again, being just living in the world, you will know that you are not empty of craving and clinging. The Buddha, let me, let me just read this again. If upon mindful reflection, mindful, not just random thoughts, mindful reflection, framed by the Eightfold Path, you find that disturbance has arisen from contact, from being in the world, then you will know that in this moment you are not empty of craving and clinging. And then he says, if you find in this moment that you are empty of craving and clinging, go behind the shed and beat your head against the wall. He doesn't say that, does he? He says nothing. He says, just practice the Dhamma. The reason I'm just making that point. Treat ourselves with great gentleness when we find that we are not empty of craving and clinging. But if you find that there is no disturbance that arises in your mind from contact at the sixth sense base, from living in the world, or a thought about myself is still contact at the sixth sense base, then you will know that craving for sensory satisfaction has been abandoned. If you find that there is no disturbance, and think about this, because every one of you has experienced it, it's really just a matter of duration at this point. If you find that there is no disturbance that arises in your mind from contact at the sixth sense base, then you will know that craving for sensory satisfaction has been abandoned. You have gained full human maturity. You've awakened. The quality of your mind will be well concentrated and empty of any disturbing thoughts. and Which means it's completely empty of eye-making because the only disturbing thought that I can have, as we now know, is a self-referential thought. 
I want more or I want less. And that applies to everything that's going on in the world. Because what's occurring in the world right now has to happen. Why? Because it is. The five, the Buddha continues, the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. The five clinging aggregates should be seen as arising and passing away, as temporary, as impermanent. The five clinging aggregates are the, the Buddha's description of the ongoing personalization of stress and suffering. The five clinging aggregates <clears throat> should be seen as arising and passing away. Form arises and passes away. The first thing that Buddha points out, and he does it often, form arises and passes away. The idea that I've attached to this form in this moment arises and passes away, and the form that houses a thought arises and passes away. It has a human life. It is born, it is, and it dies. In that little bit of time frame, whether it's you know five minutes, most people won't get it then, 66 years or 101 years, that's all the time we get, we don't know how long it is, to awaken. Form arises and passes away. Feelings arise and pass away. Perceptions arise and pass away. Fabrications arise and pass away. And thinking, in this case diluted thinking, arises and passes away. So if it's all impermanent, why create any permanence over this feeling? or a thought, or create an ongoing ideology about a thought that is now encapsulated in groups and sometimes huge groups and becomes intransigent. How does a thought become intransigent or seemingly, you can't, no, no thought is completely, because it's, it's established in a group and maintained by the group. I can't do it alone. I can't have one thought that has permanence without attaching it at least to something else or someone else. And I won't go too deep into it, but just think about it. The Buddha continues, maintaining refined mindfulness, any conceit that supports five clinging aggregates is abandoned, conceit, self-referential view, is abandoned, and this one is mindful that they have emptied themselves of any disturbance formed by ignorance. You're aware of doing it. We have the direct knowledge of this is an ignorant view or an ignorant position or an ignorant feeling. It's rooted in eye-making. I recognize it. I take a breath and I release myself from that view. This is, the, is, this is becoming rightly and directly self-awakening by doing it ourselves. It's not for me or anyone else, for the Buddha you know, a guru or anyone else to say that thought is a bad thought, you got to get rid of the thought. It's up for me. You might help me in, in, in framing my thoughts within the framework of the Eightfold Path. A wise Dhamma teacher will do that for you. But it's up to me to recognize a thought that is unskillful for me to have. A good example would be, I'm not, eh, let me think about this. A good example would be, my whole life I've wanted to play center field for the Yankees. Everyone who's listened to my class more than once or twice knows that. And I still think I might, but they really have an unsettled center, center field this year. <laughs> but for me to go to Brian Cashman, the general manager of the Yankees, and insist that despite all appearances, he give me a tryout is rooted in that. And I'm going to create tension for myself because of this ongoing fabrication. And now I'm going to spread it out into the world by insisting that the world accommodate my fabrication. 
Guess where all the disturbances in the world is coming from? People insisting that they play center field for the Yankees or other people play center field for the Yankees when they're unqualified or can't do it. I'm making. I'm using a rather ridiculous example to make the point. Whatever I associate with, if it's rooted in a fabrication, will always create disturbance and distress for me and oftentimes in the world. And sometimes when there's enough association behind it, it might lead to something like we're seeing the unpleasant things that are going on in the world today. I'll leave it at that. The quality of mind is well concentrated and empty of any disturbing thoughts. Ananda, the qualities that are developed through the Dhamma are singularly useful in developing understanding of reality. Singularly. So we're not trying to to create or fabricate another fabricated reality, even in this world or another world, such as I'm a, I practice Buddhism, so that makes me, that's all I have to do, I'm engaged, I'm compassionate, I love people, I'm against poverty, I'm against hate, I'm against this and that, because I practice Buddhism. The Buddha recognized that 2,600 years ago, and it's just as applicable today, isn't it? Because engaged Buddhism is probably the, the if, there was ever a count made, is probably the largest form of engaged Buddhism, which is mostly a, a ongoing practice that is rooted in compassion but lacking the wisdom developed through an eightfold path. I'm not saying that every person who is concerned about the world and considers themselves a Buddhist is, it fits in that category, but it's often a distraction from the Dhamma. That's what I'm talking about. Ananda, the qualities that are developed through the Dhamma are singularly useful in developing understanding of human reality. They are noble, transparent, uh, transcendent, and cannot be affected by ignorance. So for 2,600 years ago, the Buddha brought four noble truths for the first time into human history. And as we see here in this room, they, can, they have not been affected by the ignorance of humanity in all those 2,600 years ago. They're still here. We're still practicing it. They're noble truths. They do... They are timeless in that way. Now, Ananda, what do you think is a proper goal for a disciple, even after a rebuke from their teacher? Ananda says, well, you are our teacher and your Dhamma is our guide. Please explain, explain this statement for our long-term benefit. Ananda, it is not skillful to follow a teacher simply to hear discourses or dogma. So again, there's a, I, I was asked a lot of times, why do we have practice this way. Why do I have to talk so much? Why do we focus only on, on the Sangha? Well, we don't. We focus on a sutta and then we have a discussion about that. We talk about that. We have a discussion about the Dhamma framed by the Dhamma. You have done this for a long time, in the Buddha's words, and have understood them according to your views. Again, we speak only of the Dhamma framed by the Dhamma, but Talk on modesty, contentment, seclusion, non-entanglement, persistence, wisdom, virtue, and con concentration. Talk that is scrupulous, con conducive to refined mindfulness, that develops directly dispassion, disenchantment, dispassion, calm, unbinding, and the direct knowledge and cessation of release is skillful to attend and hold in mind. This is what we should be holding in mind. Thoughts and ideas that are framed by and... Uh, and inspired by 
the Eightfold Path. This being the case, failure to empty Buddha's words, this being the case, failure to empty oneself of clinging to ignorant views will lead to long-term suffering for a teacher. Again, he's, he's, he's admonishing anyone, or uh, it's not too strong, he's admonishing anyone that would present themselves as a Dhamma teacher, who's not, long-term <clears throat> suffering for the teacher, or student, or anyone engaged with that Dhamma. How does this occur for a teacher, even dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by offering of trinkets or praise and falls into three into the three defilements? So I'm very careful. I, I in fact I check the bank accounts of all of our Dhamma teachers to make <laughs> one of the reasons why we have our and one of our teachers is online here, that I insist, and now our teachers insist, that you learn and practice only the Dhamma if you're going to say you're, you're our Dhamma teacher is just for this reason. So some might, might think, well, uh, Ram might think he's, a, he's a, great met, a, a great woodworker. We talked a little about this. And woodworking is a, is a wonderful application of concentration, isn't it? But you would never see Ram sitting up here teaching a class on woodworking. He might teach a class on woodworking, but it would be separate from the Dhamma, right? Yes. (laughs) Even though he is an expert on both of these things, just to use the word. But just because he's an expert on something does not mean it should be taught here. Even though many of you would find it useful, maybe even a fine unaffiliated addition to your Dhamma practice, but we need to be clear that woodworking or painting or listening to poetry or anything else is not Dhamma practice. They're all skillful things, or wholesome things to do, but they're not skillful as they relate to the Dhamma. In seclusion, or becomes enamored by offerings of trinkets or praise and falls into the three defilements. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. There is also the case of a student lacking understanding, imitates the teacher, happens all the time, especially to me, most people I see shave their heads and try to get shorter, and has failed to empty themselves of clinging to ignorant views and becomes enamored with trinkets or praise. Uh, think about the, the empiricism that's, that is in some uh, lineages and monasteries of putting symbols on the robes that they wear to signify... Um, some type of advancement when of course there's no advancement in the Dhamma there's just this Dhamma and you awake towards it there's no there's no higher teachings here we just do it and so in, in that empiricism is part of every organization I've ever been a part of and it is here but only to the extent that we are the ones that teach the Dhamma so you listen to us but we're just here we're, and, and nobody here takes themselves or sets themselves up in any other way or on a higher chair than anyone else here. We're all just practicing the Dhamma. We just happen to have developed it to the point where we can teach it. But it hasn't made us... I mean, we're not, we're not taking... Explain this better. You don't see me putting wearing the red robe of the, of the head Dhamma teacher and David and Ram are wearing the yellow robes because they're below me, and Tom is wearing an ochre robe because he's, he's to signify he's in training, we're not wearing robes at all. Robes at all. 
we're wearing street clothes. We're not, we're not elevating ourselves in any way. As far as trinkets, I don't mind those at all. Give me all you want. <laughs> this can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. Then there is a case where one engaged with a Dhamma fails to empty themselves from clinging views. A Tathagata, a Buddha, has arisen in the world, a worthy, rightly self-awakened one, dwelling in seclusion. He, now again, as an example, he avoids becoming enamored by, by offerings of trinkets or praise and does not fall into the three defilements. So the Buddha, oftentimes during the Buddha's life, very wealthy people came and visited the Buddha living under a tree or in a grass hut, sleeping on the ground. When he was, at, for instance, having a, a, a area-wide reputation, not worldwide then, but millions of people at one point knew of them, thousands and thousands. And so oftentimes, uh, wealthy people would come to the Buddha and say, come with me, I'm going to set you up in... Uh, you can you can take the, the separate bedroom in my house, or I'll build you a mansion, or I'll build you this wonderful monastery, and you can you can sleep on silk roads. The Buddha spent his entire life living in a hut. When he could have he could have lived any other way he wanted. He could have gone back when he got tired of living under under the hut. He could have went back to his king and be a king. He never had the thought of doing. At least I don't think he had the thought of doing it because he wasn't he didn't care about those things. He enjoyed this pure pleasure of a simple life and the quality of mind that allowed him to live this simple and secluded life. He was never enamored by offerings of trinkets of praise and he never fell back into the three defilements. His mind is calm and empty of disturbance. A student of the Tathagata, dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by, by offerings of trinkets of praise and falls into the three defilements and lives in luxury. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. So it's not enough to come to Dhamma practice and meditate a little bit and figure, okay, you're good to go, and abandon it. Because you only fall into further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. In this regard, Ananda, a Dhamma practitioner who fails to empty themselves of the defilements can only continue confusion, deluded thinking, and disappointment. Do not engage with the teacher or the Dhamma in opposition. So that's something else that has developed over time here. Uh, we have established a series of guidelines where we don't get into uh, I, I presenting a, a, a sutta and then one of you, one of you students say, well, I, he I heard so-and-so say this or so-and-so say that. Why don't you say that? But what we do discuss, and again, we'll all do it in a few minutes, is related to the sutta or the dhamma that we teach here in general. It's limited to what we do. We have used the Eightfold Path and the Buddha's Dhamma to limit our practice to that which, as the Buddha teaches here, can lead to emptiness of ignorance. And we don't bring in anything that would prove a distraction even for the moment. Do not engage the teacher with, on the Dhamma in opposition. Engage with, the teacher with, engage with the teacher and the Dhamma with friendliness. That alone will be for your long-term well-being and happiness. And then the Buddha asked, the, the, again, the rhetorical question, and how do students engage in opposition to the teacher? When the teacher teaches the Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being, but the students do not listen or apply themselves to understanding, they should be beat, and then, this doesn't say that, they stray from the Dhamma. That's all the Buddha says. If they don't take it seriously, if you don't listen to what your Dhamma teacher is saying, you'll stray from the Dhamma. 
This is how a student opposes the teacher. So again, the only way you can oppose us as a Dhamma teacher is not pay attention and integrate what we're teaching and leave. That's your opposition. Again, what the Buddha is saying, don't sit here and make a ruckus because you're in opposition to the teacher. Go ahead and leave. And how do students engage with the teacher and the Dhamma in friendliness? When the teacher teaches the Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being and the students listen and apply themselves to understanding, they do not stray from the teacher or the Dhamma. This is how students engage with the teacher in friendliness and not in opposition. So I hope you'll all be my friends. And I don't mean that in a sappy way. It's not just to the teacher, though. It's to each of us, too. We all, those that are developing the Dhamma even a little bit understand that in order for us to be mutually friendly, we have to stay focused on the Dhamma because that's what we do here. And we all reap the benefit of, benefit of that friendliness, don't we? Ananda, engage with the Dhamma and friendliness. This will be for your long-term well-being and happiness. Then the Buddha says, I will not, I love this line, I will not hover over you, but I will remind you again and again of the Dhamma. Does that remind you of anyone? <laughs> what is not essential will be gone. Not that I believe in it, but thank God. What is not essential will be gone, and what is essential will remain. This is what the, was said, and Ananda was delighted in the Buddha's words. It's the end of today. What is essential will remain here. Um, so let's go online. Uh, I'm going to start with Jen's t- Dhamma teacher, Jen's friendly and smiling face. Thank you for joining us in friendliness, Jen. Oh, your site really is getting better. Yay. I'm so glad it you is. can see it that little tiny, little, little tiny smile. Although my teeth are pretty big. But anyway, <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, wow. This one has given me a lot to think about and integrate. Um, I definitely, throughout this teaching, got distracted by insights as they were arising into um, my practice. And um, being entangled in eye-making in group in social groups and in groups in general. And I feel like I have let a lot of like release a lot of, a lot of that, but what I'm on spring break this week. And so I have a lot of, I've had a lot of time and what I've noticed since I've started this practice is that when I have big chunks of time off, which I do as a school teacher, I have 10 weeks off in the summer. um, That's when I tend to like struggle more. Mm. And it's I think it's because I've let go of a lot of my habitual distractions. Yeah. And School, you know, teaching, working, and being engaged in the world sort of engages 
there, there's like some distraction that goes on there. So then when I don't have that and there's much more space and time, I begin to crave being entangled in the world. And um, that seeing how that leads to the three defilements yeah. um, is playing out in my fabrications as, as craving for being involved in social groups and it's causing nothing but stress. So that's really not just helpful, but like this is a suit to that I feel like is one that I can will need to keep coming back to and can keep coming back to as a reference every time I'm, I'm you know, coming up against a transition or having more space and really wanting to like stay focused in my practice um, and letting go of the, the habit, the conditioning of engage, 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 get engage in, in the world. It's, it's, Yeah. I don't know if any of that made sense, but it definitely, uh, this is a real helpful sutta for me. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. Um, And and very briefly, because, you know, it was a long sutta, but um, you gave a great presentation a few months ago about um, separating your Dharma practice from other things that you do. And just no big deal. Please tell me you'd rather not talk about it this morning, but I'd want to ask you again, just briefly, You've done a masterful job of of separating your yoga practice, which is important to you, from your dharma practice. Would you just you know just talk about that briefly? Because I think it'll be helpful. Um, yeah, I guess um, being involved in any group setting or any group activity. Um, I mean, you just said it perfectly, John. When you when you said it's okay to be involved in a group as long as you are, it is that involvement is empty of ignorance. Um, And so, yeah. And so if, if you're, it's, it's just that it's really practicing, always practicing the Dhamma and always coming back to taking the eye making out of any, anything that you're doing in your life, including, being social and being involved in a nourishing practice that includes other people who may even be helping, you know, encourage your nourishment. Um, and the same thing can happen even in a Sangha. You can be identifying, over-identifying with being in the Sangha. And that in and of itself, even subtly, can cause suffering. So if that's happening, that's when you should read this sutta again. That's right. Thank you, Jen. Uh, Ram, do you have your iPad with you? No, it's in the trunk. Okay, because I, I don't know what this usually make it through. I'm going to, just give me a moment. I'm going to lose the uh, the battery on this. So I want to call you up on another. I've got my surface. If this will work. hope it does. Yeah, I can quickly run out and grab a charger. Yeah, if I can get on here, I'll have enough juice on this to keep it going.
There you are. Recording in progress. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. How do I do this? When do I have to show this? There it is. Okay, I have to use that one for the audio. All right, all right, all right, all right. gonna work over. I gotta hold on. I gotta shut this one down. Nah, that didn't work. I'm going to shut this one off. It'll go off by itself in a second, but... There we go. All right. Nah, I'm going to turn the volume back up over here. Where am I? All right. We're back, right? You guys hear me? Sounds good. Uh, Tom, I know you might have to leave because uh, it's the middle of the afternoon for you. So what do you have to say for yourself? I'm glad you joined us. Um, yeah, I'm actually going to take noble silence this week. Um, I enjoyed the teaching and um, always um, always good. Yeah, I was a little bit in the middle of the day, so I had to find a way to join. Um, I'm glad I did. Um, Alex also passed on his apologies. He's he's on a, a weekend away with some friends, and so they, I think, di uh, lunch was served. So that's why he and the other guy had to leave. But they said he just passed on that, that, that they both they both enjoyed it. So so thank you, and uh, yeah, look look forward to joining again. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm glad you joined us too, Tom and Alex as well. So, uh, Deb, is that you in the bottom of the screen? Yes. Yeah, so okay. Is like, that like, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty cool. Thinking. Uh, Mary, how are you? Hi, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is a very good sutta, one that um, I can see returning to. Uh, it seems to, you know, throw caution at the extremes, and there's all different kinds of extremes you can experience. Uh, when exploring um, and becoming more familiar uh, with the Dhamma because of the different, you know, emotions or, um, you know, depending on where you're coming from in terms of your um, your experiences and your emotional state. So it's um, a good reminder of the uh, middle way because without... The middle way you are not truly being present you might appear to be um you know at peace or or living the dhamma but it is all about what is in your head your right speech um but you cannot be present in the world unless you are truly living the middle way um i guess that's what i wanted to say so thank you yeah. well said mary thank you Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, everybody. Um, I, th I think I'm going to have to take noble silence and maybe gather my thoughts. I think I can write a book on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think you're on. Yeah. I'm glad you joined Thank us, Jeff. Thank you. Hello, Brian. Good morning, everybody. Um, I really related to this one. Present uh, crew excluded. I'm not very passionate about company in general. Um, and I would say over the past year, I've watched my identification with groups, whether they were ideological, cultural, sporting, or otherwise just diminish. Yeah. And, and I flew this week for work for the first time in over two years wow. and had to go to a dinner. And it was just fascinating to go through an experience that I had had so much identity with in the past that that whole traveling and, you know, going out for, for a good meal and, and whatever, and just being non-identified with it this time was really interesting. And, and somebody made a comment at dinner, well, we needed to get you out of your cave. And I'm like, that's fine. I just brought the cave with me. Yeah. <laughs> they just looked at me like I had two heads and I'm like, you get it, you get it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's fine. So um, appreciate the teaching. There's, there's a lot in here and I really, really related to it. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. I think your friend Kevin has left us. Yeah. I think he had to drop. Yeah. See you. See you, Adam. There. Oh, good. Good morning. Um, yeah, I, I found a lot of, uh, of, uh, use out of this one. I, I think because I'm new. So it's it's very relevant for me, you know. And uh, I think I've been I've been here. This is my third time. Is it? Yeah. Wow. And um, I remember the the first couple of times uh, struggling with med with meditation because when I would try to meditate as compared to when I meditate when I'm home alone, when I would meditate here there's this flurry of thoughts relating to I'm in a group, I'm in a group because there's this, there's a novelty here. Cause I, mm. I'm, I don't think I've been in a group setting in, in years. And so there's this, uh, novelty, there's a novelty of that. Yeah. And so my mind is going on about, um, what I'm going to say later to, to someone or who I hope I'm going to get to speak to or, I'm wondering what that, and and the whole t yeah, so the whole time I'm not able to uh, focus on my breath, and so there's this uh, there's a, the the stress of that distraction. I'm not able to uh, just be here in the moment. My mind's yeah. like in the future. But you recognize that distraction as stress, right? Yeah, that's that's Dharma practice. And so that so you know this time I I, I meditate. And I'm just. You know, I'm acknowledging it's like, oh, this thought, uh, this thought means that I'm not here in in in, in the moment, yeah. in, in the present. You know, um, yeah. So uh, I, I wrote a couple of things down. I'm, I'm sorry. Is that all right? Yeah. Can I keep going? Yeah, um, please. You, you, you first have to experience the, the pleasure of seclusion in order to um, be motivated to go for that as an alternative to yeah. the type of 
pleasure that maybe you've been habituated your life to, to, to chase. Yeah. yeah. That is, that you're talking about the first jhana. Right. The joy born of seclusion. Yeah. And so when we can generate that first for the, the seclusion that's found on our cushion, and again, it's important to, to have that rather than a, the grim determination to go, I got to do this thing for 10 right. minutes or 20 minutes because yes. I have to, rather than taking joy in that seclusion you've established both physically and then by being mindful of your breath and your body because you can then take that seclusion out into an unsecluded world. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're describing pure Dhamma practice and I interrupted you, but it's an important that, point. That, um, I, I've uh, noticed in, a, in, in the past couple of months uh, that I've, I, I used to struggle with uh, loneliness and now I found myself a lot more comfortable being alone yeah. and I still enjoy company and I still enjoy people and interacting with people um, but I can go several days uh, on my own and maybe not interacting with someone and I'm just completely comfortable with it. Yeah, you're not alone and you don't feel isolated. Right. Yeah, again, that's Dharma practice. And it's also it's also a good sign of mental health when you can really honestly yeah. most people in the world can't do that they, if they're if they're home alone they're gonna have something going on you know music or you know, TV playing or something like that you know or always going back to, to their their social media but yeah and, and, and think about that an example of a mature human being how we describe awakening is someone that could be at peace by themselves with their own thoughts yeah I'm, I'm reminded of something that Jen once brought up about a show called Alone and how uh, the, the, the people that uh, it was like a show about people going off into nature uh, by themselves and trying to figure out how to survive that for a long period really? And I know she mentioned the show, is that an ongoing show? I, mean, I don't know if it's ongoing yeah. I, I, I've never watched it but uh, I remember her saying that the people that do well in there are people that are uh, comfortable in, in, in being alone and, and are very present in the moment and yeah. and so the, yeah they're the ones that I are man like are able to do that comfortably. Um, I don't know if this is exactly related, but I have one more thought, which is that as I uh, come to understand uh, the Dhamma better um, in understanding that I'm, I sort of see how I'm uh, how do I put it how I'm lacking in the development of, of the, the Dhamma which makes me concerned about how I might be contributing to distraction and which motivates me to continue developing the Dhamma. You know, like it's sort of like a self-feeding cycle that I've noticed. So it's okay to recognize, in fact, yeah. it's important to recognize, skillful to recognize that there's more to do, Just don't but it's not skillful to judge yourself over it. Yes. Yeah, so but the recognition that I've established a measure of seclusion and con concentration, because yeah, that's what you're, and, there's still more to go. Yes. And that's, again, that you're describing pure Dhamma practice. It's just that way. You know, except that 
to not make any aspect of the Dhamma, including the recognition that I need to go further, a, a, a distraction. It's just a recognition that, yeah, you're, you're, you're developing the Dhamma as intended, um, but continue to be very gentle with yourself. And you're learning that too. That's something, uh, Dev and I have been having an ongoing conversation for a while too, so I can ask the question. You've learned to be much gentle with yourself than you had in the past. I'm yeah. Correct, I'm not putting... And it, w would you say, again, you don't have to say yes or no, it's not, it was because of your Dhamma practice that you yes, were able to develop that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, again, the, the, all the things that you are describing is the results of pure, uh, in, in well engaged with Dhamma practice. So good for you, Dave. Yeah, I, 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 um, I, I would know these things uh, on an intellectual level, but it, it, that didn't, that wasn't enough for me to not beat myself up over what I see as uh, maybe my shortcomings. And it was, it, it, it was really uh, engaging in a practice that, that uh, allowed me uh, that ability. Yeah, and they're, they're, you're finding out that there's no, there's very few people that would have shortcomings that wouldn't allow them to sit for one minute and be mindful of their breath. And that's all it takes to begin the Dom practice. You know, is that, and then there's out of, there's nobody, no adult, meaning anybody, say anybody older than 12, really, that can't understand this either. In fact, I think maybe the younger you are or the less conditioned you are by your own religious, spiritual, philosophical endeavors, the better off you're, you're going to be as far as developing the yeah, Dhamma sure. too. Yeah. Just because there's not all that other stuff to filter through, you just, this is what you do. So. Glad you made it today, a big yeah. day. <laughs> Kevin, good to see you, my friend. These, um... How how far have you emptied yourself? Oh my God! <laughs> How's that? My house or me? the <laughs> same. Yeah, I should have asked you before you before you had to sell your house. Yeah. Didn't have to before you sold your house yeah. to me. So. Just um, these talks on emptiness are so important, and they're so deep, and they're so complex that it's. It's great to go over it, and it's great to be reminded of what emptiness really is. Um, and, you know, trying to get there. <laughs> There's uh, one, one passage from the Kula Sanata Sutta, which I didn't get a chance to come to Tuesday, as usual, but um, it's just really striking to me. You know, he goes through all the speculative realms that you need to empty yourself of. And then it says, it comes to the point where it is understood that whatever disturbances that arose from stress or sensuality, from the stress of becoming and from the stress of ignorance, are no longer present. There is now only a minor disturbance connected to the sixth sense base that is dependent on the body with life as the condition. There is only the non-emptiness connected with the sixth sense base and dependent on this body with life as the condition. Yeah. And as you're talking today, you know, the Buddha says, I will explain what is reality. Yeah. I mean, that just, that's yeah. it. That's the essence of it. Yeah. And it's not like you can just say, okay, I'm going to empty myself of this sixth sense base in this body. You could, you could take your own life and just and yeah. you know extinguish yourself you know physically but while we're here this is 
what arises, and this yeah. is, uh, if we can empty ourselves of the rest of it, that it's great, and then this is what it is. Yeah, it is. that's reality. Right here, right now. Well, well said. I, I was going to say, if you if you wanted a um, auditory example of calm, we should take Kevin's voice and just play it. It's so funny. Yeah. Calm on the outside, turmoil on the inside. <laughs> well, I, again, I would I would say, and, and again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I would like an answer if you feel like you don't have to. You have emptied yourself of a lot of ignorance, and I would bet you would say you've emptied yourself of a lot of stress that would give rise to reactions too is that not correct yes correct yeah. but it's a constant ongoing yeah. cycle when um having to redo that yeah, yeah. again and that, staying on the path that's dharma that's practice yeah. Yeah. thank you kevin thank you dharma teacher ram <sighs> john um that's a this is a biggie um big teaching on how how to be in the world um, how to be in the sangha properly um, and I, I like what Dev said about um, <clears throat> this 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 tension uh, around uh, aloneness and I've noticed that in, in my, my own life, that um, I used to be uncomfortable with my, um, my desire to, to just be alone at times. Yeah. And now I'm, this is just, it feels perfectly natural to be, to be alone. Yeah. And when there are people to be engaged with, there are people to be engaged with. Yeah. Uh, That's a great description of seclusion as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't matter where you are. So, yeah, and then the Buddha also takes Ananda back by the hand and say, "Yeah, I just rebuked you. You know, I just told you that what you were doing has some dangers in it. Um, but you know, you know, take this as as taking you by the hand, not as." as um, you know, don't react to this yeah. in other suits he would say it's out of sympathy that I do this because mm -hmm. you know, yep. I care for you that I'm, I'm a little rough with yeah. you yeah. Yeah. and it's, it's important to read that because it's he's also saying yeah it's going to be difficult at times but it's only because of what you need to do you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. because of your own ignorance that it's difficult. It's not the path itself is not. That's why I always say it's easy. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Dharma teacher David. John, I'm all set today. Thank you. I'm glad you joined us. So, um, the the uh, the important thing on this is not necessarily so much to remember that the Buddha taught emptiness differently and contradictorily to others, but he did. But as far as our Dharma practice, it's just important to recognize that we empty ourselves of ignorance. And, that, and that's what we've all talked about, you know, how we're doing that. Uh, that is, you hear me talk about wise restraint is applied at the point of contact. The Dhamma is only the Dhamma, only useful at the point of contact. And it's, it's just that way. It's right here and right now that we apply the Dhamma and awaken. And so in this moment, 
am I, it's a simple question we can all ask ourselves, just as a reminder to Dharma practices, is in this moment, is what I'm seeing and experiencing empty of ignorance? And if it's not, take a breath, that's all. If it's not, we don't judge ourselves, as, as Deb talked about, we just, we just take another breath. And in that next breath is the rest of our lives, isn't it? If I, and, it, and, the, and it's the rest of our lives in the way that I want to make it now, rather than the life that I was living in the last breath. And our lives are just that way. We, we, can't, we can't bifurcate our lives breath by breath, but we can recognize the power of using our breath to end a fabrication, interrupt ongoing delusion, and simply be here. You know, there's that great book, and they, they, the only thing that's good about the book, there's other things that are good about the book, but be here now. It's, it's, it doesn't teach the Dhamma, but by Alan Watts. But the, the, the title, Be Here Now. Why would we want to be here now? If there's a reason why I don't want to be here now, it's rooted in self-loathing and aversion to myself and what's occurring. It's just another thought to recognize and abandon. Even though those types of thoughts tend to be very complex and deeply rooted, it still just takes another breath. So take a breath, enjoy your life in this moment, and then take another breath and enjoy that one by being mindfully present. We'll finish with Metta as we always do. Thank you all for staying with me. Well, I gotta, I gotta use this. How am I gonna do this? I should remember Metta, shouldn't I? But I don't. That's right, what I'll do. Give me a moment. Um, Maybe you might if you try. No, I, oh, it'll come. I'll have enough battery in here to. to uh, I'm just waiting for the my other iPad to boot up. Um, so this this concept of emptiness also points to the limiting factor of the Dhamma. And so that type of emptiness, um, that as we hold in mind that type of emptiness, empty of ignorant views, it is often reflected in the way that we live our lives. In other words, we tend to empty ourselves of some of the trappings of human life as well, uh, whether it might be, a, in my case, a cluttered house uh, or cluttered associations or too much of this or too much of that in the world. Uh, or that we're exposing ourselves to. All right, we'll finish with meta as we always do. <clears throat> I'll have to engage in my Evelyn Wood speed reading training to get through this before the bat. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> I have 10% of power, which should be plenty. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I have it up, John, if you want me to read it. Uh... It should be right here. Yes, Dhamma teacher Jen, thank you. No problem. So again, find your relaxed meditative posture, gently close your eyes and gently close your mouth. And here's Jen. (laughs) This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. 
Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you, Jen. That is a, another great teaching on emptiness, isn't it? Being empty of all sense desires. Thank you all for, for a great class. Uh, we'll see you on uh, Tuesday. <laughs> we'll conclude this class with the Kakaya Nagata Sutta. Uh, and David will be teaching that class. So something to look forward to there. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.